Great. Okay. Thank you, Rachel, for your help as well. Good morning. Buenos dias. Bon dia. Excellent. What an accent, by the way. So good to be together. Thank you for your warm welcome. I was thanking James again for his uh, kind words and support and prayer. And it's lovely to see, uh, I believe, many of you again. If you were not able to be with us yesterday, shame on you. No, I'm joking. Uh, thank you for coming today as we continue our conversation on the gospel in Europe today. Uh, just very briefly, we had an introduction on the importance of thinking of the gospel and particularly God's mission in Europe today, the continent where the church is growing the least. Certainly huge, massive challenges in various parts of the world, but we were highlighting some of the reasons why speaking about Europe is so strategic, is so necessary, so important. And we begin doing so with a biblical framework, Paul coming to Europe in his second missionary journey, particularly reaching one of the most influential cities in the history of humanity, Athens. And we were reading from uh, Dr. Luke's description of Paul's arrival in Athens as he did so, at least in Europe, with a multicultural and multi-generational team. And as he reaches Athens, we saw that he was profoundly distressed as he saw the idolatry of one of the main cities in Europe. We were challenged by the fact that God felt the same in regards to the idolatry of his people in the Old Testament. And Luke is using the same word to describe how Paul felt in this um, mission in Europe at that moment. And how much we need to begin there as well as we are going to look at information and stats and needs and what God is doing. But what are we feeling by God's Spirit as we come to such an important uh, conversation? And then we were seeing how Luke also uses some very specific verbs to describe the fact that Paul was learning about the context he wanted to reach. He was learning about Europe, specifically about Greece, as he was walking around the city, as he was seeing the city, as he was dialoguing and discussing with people, both in the synagogue and the marketplace, Luke says, day by day, all of that before being invited to proclaim the message he was discussing and sharing with others. And certainly he spent a good amount of time in humility, learning the culture, as later on, as we saw at least a couple of times, he quotes Greek poets. And he uses the culture to build bridges to God's revelation. In other words, as we remembered yesterday in Stott's words, he was double listening. He listened to the word of God, but he listened to the world of God. In a particular culture, in a particular context, as he was learning, knowing more about who they were, appreciating who they were, but also acknowledging their idolatry and bringing the good news of the gospel to a specific European context. We were then 
um, dialoguing a bit about the process of post-secularization in Europe, where we find ourselves in many parts of the world in a unique moment in history where both secularization is growing and spirituality is growing. And that's a very interesting phenomenon. And I was quoting from some philosophers, sociologists, mainly from Spain. If you weren't able to be yesterday with us, I understand the seminar is being recorded, but I wanted to make sure we are on the same page as we are challenged by the realization that it is indeed true that the secularization is growing. But it's also true that there is an openness, a spirituality that is growing and the classical theories of secularization that expected that technology and um, scientific progress would produce only very secular societies have proven to be wrong. And religion is growing. However, not religion as we understood it to be embraced 50, 100, 200 years ago in Europe in a very different way, oftentimes on a selfie spirituality where you mix various expressions, where you choose and where you are hesitant about the classical Christianity that many embraced in various countries of Europe. And finally, we highlighted the fact that we talk about Europe's when we talk about Europe, really. Massive differences. Northern Europe or Southern Europe, East, Central, depending on political reasons, religious, uh, and even the Christian uh, influence in places that the Reformation really touched and influenced, such as the UK, Northern uh, Europe, but other parts where there was great resistance to the Reformation, for example, from the Catholic churches, church, such as Spain, where even recently people experienced uh, tremendous uh, rejection. I remember a pastor in Spain who was expelled of her school when she was young because her family was Protestant. And you find that in other countries, I'm sure, in, in Europe. But you have that history that is very different from Northern Europe, uh, or you find the Orthodox influence in other parts of Europe. So certainly there are many common denominators, but there are variances that are very important to realize as we learn more about Europe. And as we continue, I would like to take some more time for us to be double listening, walking around, learning about Europe today. And I'm very, very glad to welcome our dear friend who has been a mentor to me as well, Jim Memory and Christine Memory, who are here a day, a full day with us at Keswick. They've been uh, missionaries to Spain and uh, have been involved in various uh, responsibilities. But I'm not saying because of our friendship or the fact that he is here, but he is someone that God is using extensively um, in Europe and helping others see what God is doing in Europe. Uh, recently, Jim released a report on the state of Europe that has been translated to various languages. We will have a uh, QR code if you want to access the report and many organizations and ministries have been using that report as they also seek to understand Europe better. So I thought it would be wonderful to have Jim with us and the opportunity to ask him several questions as we continue to learn more about Europe. Would that be okay? Would you help me welcome uh, Jim please? Thank you, Jim. Once again, 
Do you have a song to begin with, or can I no, just begin? No, no, and, and you know, you've you've shown already that you dominate the whole uh, English culture and the sense of humor and everything. It's amazing. <laughs> well, we try our best. <laughs> But uh, going to some of the main points because of our time. Thank you once again, Jim and Christine, for being with us. But as we continue to learn about Europe, um, Jim, if you could highlight some of the trends you are observing um, that would help us know better where Europe is at the moment. And maybe we can do this in different areas of society. Mm -hmm. Let's begin with politics. Okay. Uh, very briefly, some of the major uh, trends and moments you see in Europe. We'll then talk about economics and demographics, but we are, again, gathering information and knowledge as we seek to serve God in Europe. Okay, I'm just going to say one thing in word of introduction to the report. Please do. Um, the report was written in the spring of 2021. And I thought I would make the report really up to date and engage with the whole impact of covid On, and all that that was having, the impact it was having on church and on mission and on life in Europe, have it right bang up to date, and, um, and out I launched it. And then six months later, um, Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine, and everything changes again. So what the report does is give you a snapshot of things as they were in the spring of 2021. I am going to rewrite the report in the spring of next year, Uh, and bring it up to date. But I say all of that because whenever, whatever we see about Europe is only from one perspective, from where we are often, and is only in one moment of time. And so what, I, what I'm going to say is my perspective as someone who has connections around Europe. I spoke to 30 key leaders in the pre preparation of the report after I wrote it to get their feedback. One of those was Hilda. Um, to say, you know, did I get this right? Is this the way that you see things as well? So that, in words of introduction, I encourage you to have a look at it anyway. And don't, don't be surprised if you disagree with me. Um, it's not meant to be the last word on Europe, okay? It's to stimulate reflection and precisely the kind of engagement that you were talking about because mm -hmm. we need to think about the context where we are living and working. So... With respect to politics, well, um, I don't think it will surprise any of you that it, if I say that in the last 15 years, there's been a real resurgence of nationalism in Europe, particularly populist nationalism. So um, to explain that in very uh, quick terms, nationalism is really a, a vision of the world which tries to uh, define who we are by saying who we are not, uh, we do a sort of horizontal um, opposition between us and them, okay? And we define who we are as a nation against others. Now, they might be migrants, they might be people from another region, they might be from another country, but that's the kind of story that is told around nationalism, okay? Populism is more a vertical opposition between us and the elites who we blame for all the problems that there are in society. And so that kind of uh, story is being told continually right now about who we are. So the question of our identity as a people is really, really important in many places across Europe right now. 
For many, many years, nationalism was kept in control in Europe by our memories of World War II. Mm. Um, that has changed. That generation that remembers that has lost, and that's why we're seeing it around Europe. That's the key thing that people need to be on the lookout for across Europe right now, politically. Thank you very much, Jim. Moving to economics and particularly its relationship with the terrible war that we are seeing in the continent. Mm. Some thoughts on that? Yeah, very briefly. Absolutely. Um, we have a, an addiction in Europe today, and our addiction is to debt. We think that we can borrow our way out of all of our problems, and I'm talking that national, national level, but also personally. We have an idea in our heads of the standard of life that we would like to have, we would like our children to have, and if we can't get that by earning enough, we will borrow it. And our whole economies are basically borrowing from our children and grandchildren in order to keep our standard of living up as it is today. We're in serious trouble, <laughs> and it's not just Britain. It's pretty much the case for uh, many of the countries in Europe. And, of course, the Ukraine war only exacerbates that by, our, by increasing the debt that we need to uh, go into in order to keep, that, um, keep our economies and our defence spending mm -hmm. up. Absolutely. Demographics. Yeah. Well, the demographic trends, there's two things that we really need to have in our minds. The most visible demographic thing that we all see uh, is migration. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the topic that um, often gets mentioned in the news when people think about people, people movements and so on. The thing that is not mentioned as often is the incredible aging of the European population. We are not replacing our population. We have fewer and fewer children. Most of the countries in Mediterranean Europe have chronically low birth rates. Even some very large countries, like Germany, have had 20 years of um, underpopulation. And that's part of why there are so many mig migrants coming into Europe to replace the population that we're not having, we're not generating. So that's uh, two of the key trends in regards to demographics. Thank you so much. Jim, maybe one or two highlights when we think of uh, religion, faith, mm -hmm. uh, where we are in Europe at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. I think we're in a very special moment. Mm. Um, Christine and I uh, worked with European Christian Mission for many years. Uh, we went out to the Philippines in 1991 uh, thinking we were going to the ends of the earth. Okay? So we had Acts 1-8 sort of ringing in our ears. You know, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we were going to go to the ends of the earth and plant churches. And when we got to the Philippines, we found the church was actually doing okay. <laughs> It was doing fine without us, and they were planting churches, and they were uh, feeding the poor, and they were uh, hungry for the gospel, and we came back to Europe and suddenly crashed into this reality of a continent that was desperately in need of the gospel. Hmm. And that was our epiphany back in 1991, yeah. when we realized that the ends of the earth is right here, here in Keswick even. This is a mission frontier. Britain is on a mission frontier now, mm. along with the rest of Europe. And we really need to get to grips with this 
new vision, really, of seeing ourselves as uh, um, people on mission in Europe today and understanding that God has put us here for a good reason. We are in the most exciting moment because God has not abandoned Europe. He's brought millions Mm. of majority world Christians into Europe in the last 50 years to live and work and worship alongside us and work with us in reaching this generations of Europe, just generation of Europeans. So there's a huge mobilization of God's church going on, and we need to find ways of working with that. That's so very important. Thank you, Jim. I would like to invite Jim back in a few minutes, particularly to explore more of what you are seeing either through European Christian Mission. Jim is also the co-director of the Lausanne Movement, connecting with countries across the continent. would love to hear more of what you are seeing God doing and some practical recommendations as well. We will go back to the text, though. So if you take a seat or a cup of tea and a scone, in just seven minutes or ten, we'll have Jim back. But uh, as we have hopefully grasped even more of the context we are talking about, As Paul was in Athens. Let's go back to the text, please, in Acts chapter 17. As we see Paul now getting engaged with God's mission in that context. He learned about the context. He knew the waters he was navigating in. And now he gets about the mission in such a needed context. Act 17, and we have read yesterday until verse 21, where after dialoguing, learning, discussing, he was then invited to come to the Areopagus. And allow me to highlight some of the, I'm sure, many lessons we can find in Paul's activity in Athens. When first, note how He begins where people are. I said something briefly about it. And what an important lesson it is for us to realize the different Europe in which we live today. And the calling to begin where people are. Paul then, verse 22, stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship... I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven. And he goes on. Paul notices the altar to the unknown God. He then begins where they were and builds a bridge to his speech at the Areopagus. We said something about him being very diplomatic in a positive way, acknowledging what was positive about the culture. I recognize that you are religious, and I want to applaud that. At the same time, I see an altar to the unknown God. Among many gods, well, the God that is unknown to you is actually the one that is Known to me. And he does not begin with Christ or the Old Testament. He begins by 
showing them that the unknown God actually was the only true God, and the true God was the creator. Where does Paul begin then? In Genesis chapter 1. Again, he is not quoting the Old Testament, but we will find that Paul's speech is actually a proclamation on who God is. The climax will be Christ, but he begins further back in his communication than, for example, in Acts 13, when he's speaking at a synagogue to Jews that had already scriptures as their framework and believed in the existence of God and needed, however, to be convinced that Christ was the Messiah. I wonder if you're familiar with the Engel scale. Engel was an American professor who suggested something that may seem obvious, but I find it very relevant to our conversation when he said, we tend to see people in their spiritual journey as being, let's say, on the minus one point. And as they learn that Jesus loves them and they are called to repentance, some will cross the line and they will be converted. And that has been the approach in many of the European, I'm sure British, North American, in the last many decades and even centuries, when you already had a biblical framework, Christian values, people had that sort of notion. So you reached people in a certain point, you know, we calling them to a vibrant and real relationship with Christ. Engel, however, expands the spectrum and says, well, there are so many people on the minus two and the minus three and the minus four up to the minus eight in terms of his scale saying there are people who don't even believe in the existence of God or there are people who believe in the existence of many gods. Then there are people who are very antagonistic to that God. And then there are people who may become open to the reality of God. And then there are people who are, by meeting those who believe in Jesus, be open to a conversation. And then he shows how God can move people along the spectrum up to, certainly, the point of a new birth. And what he encourages us is to realize that in many of our contexts, we continue to have an approach like Acts 13 approach, when the context is much more like Acts 17 approach. And certainly, Britain and Europe, a hundred years ago, even as we are inspired by evangelists and missionaries who God has used greatly in this context, they were dealing with a very different culture. And they could approach culture, evangelism, and missions from a specific angle. Because many people were at at a certain point with some frameworks. That wasn't the case with Athens. So Paul doesn't begin where he begins in Acts 13. He begins further back. He cannot begin with Jesus because these people didn't even believe in the existence of one true God, who was the creator. He begins further back. And I find it to be a challenge for me and perhaps for you as well as we serve God in such contexts. Not only my proclamation... But the work we do as a church and my relationships and friendships and plans and strategies perhaps need to begin further back in a culture that needs to realize many of the things that we used to realize decades ago when as a culture we have a Christian background. What would it mean to us to begin further back where people actually are? And begin building bridges there. That's what Paul is doing. 
And then he takes them by the hands, where they are. And he will then take them all the way to Jesus. He doesn't, doesn't begin where he wanted them to be. He begins where they were. With their struggles and doubts, perceptions, worldviews. And from there, he walks them, joining hands all the way to an impressive theology of God speech. We don't have the time to go into it until he goes to the point where Jesus is proclaimed. But he speaks of God as creator. He speaks of God in other ways that, secondly, were connecting with the culture, but also were contrasting with the culture's worldview. And you can almost feel those philosophers and the audience shouting, yes, we agree with that, Paul. Indeed, that's what we think. But at other points saying, what is this man saying? So are you talking about one creator? So Paul is connecting and confronting. Connecting and confronting. All along his speech in Act 17. It is actually very striking. Paul, in a way, is applying apologetics. Which I think can be helpful to use a metaphor and think that uh, human hearts and minds are the soil where the seeds of the gospel will be planted. But we all have our rocks. And Paul is dealing with the rocks of the soil of the Athenians. And he's trying to remove those rocks so that the seed of the gospel can be better planted. What are the rocks in our cultures, minds and hearts? Uh, there are some rocks in the European soil, but then there can be specific rocks in Kazakh that are different from the ones in Granada and they are different from the ones in Helsinki, Finland. Paul is dealing with those rocks. And I find it, again, challenging to consider in our mission in Europe the need of beginning further back and we want to connect, but we want to confront. We learn the questions in order to provide the answers and to deal with the rocks. Otherwise, we would just be sending the seeds that are falling into the rocks because the context is different from what it used to be. Third place, I just want to highlight how God is using Paul in the Areopagus of Athens. He doesn't arrive in the Areopagus. He is invited to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the, the place where, where authorities would meet and discuss major decisions, but also ideas and philosophies. Because he learned the culture, he engaged with the culture, in a way he gains the space and authority to speak into their worldview. And he is invited to the Areopagus, where ideas were formed. Well, may I ask you, what are the Areopaguses of our culture? We must be there. We must be proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the Areopagus of our culture. Certainly, universities and social media and other spaces of uh, Decisions in our localities and towns and, and, and cities or in your space of work and, and mission 
or among other parents or at that school, wherever ideas are being discussed and influence is exerted in society, well, we are called to be there as well. But allow me to emphasize, God may grant us the grace to quickly be present at the Areopagus of our societies, but it often happens, as with Paul, that we are invited into those spaces because first, we have been intentional in our relationships, conversations, learning processes in those spaces. Let's say I'm uh, wearing a certain red shirt one day and I'm walking down Keswick. Someone stops me and says, what an ugly shirt you're wearing, man. What do you think my reaction would be? Who are you? I don't know you. Who are you to be you know, commenting on my shirt? He or she may make me think about it, but my initial reaction would be, who are you? But if I meet Jim and Christine, who are good friends this morning, and Jim looks at me and says, what an ugly shirt you're wearing. Or if I call my wife, which I do every day when I'm away to get her approval on the clothes I'm wearing. <laughs> I, I don't do that. Because she chooses the clothes I'm taking in my luggage. <laughs> I've gone through those steps already. We're joking. And Anna says, that's an ugly shirt. Don't take it. Or why did you even buy it? Well, she tends to buy my clothes. So that's not... <laughs> Anyhow, just... I would listen to her. I would listen to them. Why? Because we have a relationship. I know they care about me. That there is context. And I think in a way this is happening. And if I can expand the, the metaphor to our own local context, there where you work, where you study, where you make relationships on social media spaces, you connect with other people. Oftentimes we may be voicing opinions, truths, and they will be heard in a way, but they can be heard on another way if there is relationship, there is trust, there is love, there is an invitation then to come to the Areopagus and speak to my life, speak to the culture. Certainly as a church, we have a prophetic responsibility to speak into culture. But on personal levels, and even as local churches and ministries, what could happen if indeed we were more intentional about being present, engaging, connecting, loving, and receiving opportunities to affect the Areopagus, where we must be, as Paul did, connecting, but also confronting. Connecting and confronting at the Areopagus. And note as well how he is dialoguing with this culture, but he is also proclaiming. Paul is dialoguing and proclaiming. And announcing at the same time. I find it also to be an important application to us in Europe today. Particularly when we think of mission among younger generations. I, I've noted in many circles, even within evangelical churches, a lack of confidence in God's word, in proclamation, teaching, preaching. As if people don't want to listen to monologues today. And... Uh, not only because I'm a preacher myself, but I think 
based on the Bible and in culture, I would highly disagree with that. Well, young guys are listening to people like Jordan Peterson for hours. And he's not using multimedia. He's speaking for hours, deep content that is connecting to their lives. Jordan Peterson, you may know, is one of the most intellectual, influential intellectuals of our days, a Canadian psychiatrist. And, um, well, people love listening to TED Talks. TED Talks take uh, 18 minutes, right? But actually, if you go to a TED event, it's all day long. It's many TED Talks. People love going to concerts and listening to monologues. Uh, I think there is something intrinsic in human nature, which I think is associated to God's character and God's being the Word Himself that uh, we, we, we appreciate. And there is something profound about listening to someone uh, speaking to my life. And God has chosen to use the spoken word in amazing ways. You look at the Old Testament and we see when he wanted to cause a deep change in society. For example, through Ezekiel, he calls a man and says, prophesy, speak to the people, speak to the culture. And uh, throughout the history of the Old Testament, then you come to the New, John Baptist, Jesus, the apostles. Uh, I think it's a very difficult thing to make a case against the importance of proclamation and how God uses proclamation, teaching, preaching of his word to cause changes in any society. And Paul is realizing that he's giving the opportunity and he's proclaiming, he's preaching, he's announcing. Now, how we do that must be contextualized for sure. Uh, it doesn't have to be for 30 minutes or 40, it can be for two or four. Uh, I mean, the, the ways we do it vary, but we must do it. And we must have confidence in the authority of God's word. And I'm impressed by the fact that some of the churches and ministries having greatest impact in Europe, in Europe among young people uh, have a high view, not only of God's word, but of, of the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And God is using it in mighty ways. But Paul is also dialoguing. He's listening. He's engaging. So it's not one or the other. It's both and as we approach the teaching of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. But also, we realize that uh, the voice starts where people are. He goes all the way to Jesus and he proclaims the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Christ which wasn't something that that worldview would believe in. So note how he, is very, he doesn't begin with Christ, death or resurrection, but that's where his message goes to. He acknowledges the importance of bringing people before the cross of Christ, his death and his res resurrection and the need of repentance. He's still true to the true gospel. He is contextualizing Absolutely, but he's still communicating the gospel. So should we. And finally, in verse 31, um, sorry, 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Amaris, and a number of others. You have three reactions to God's 
worked through Paul. Some accepted, some rejected, and some said, let's talk more about it. I'm sure that's real in our different contexts in Europe as we realize yeah, God continues to work and we must engage in God's mission in Europe with confidence. God is saving people. God is transforming people. God is freeing people today. And perhaps the reality can diminish, at least in me, the confidence that I want to have in the fact that the gospel is the power of God. And he is changing. He is transforming. At the same time, realizing people will reject the gospel. It's always happened and it will continue to happen. We cannot expect to receive open arms in our communities always. If people are not rejecting what we are doing in some ways, I wonder if we are being truly faithful to the gospel. Jesus was rejected. Paul was being rejected. We are going to be rejected. And we have a tendency as a church to always blame ourselves. Oh, we are not doing a good job. We as a church don't love. Yeah, we need to improve always. But there is a spiritual battle and a reality of people who will reject the gospel. And it may not, your local church may be pleasing God in a marvelous ways. And still there are people rejecting it. That's happening to Paul. But finally, and I think this is also very relevant to the European context. Others who said, we want to talk further. And there is a process. Again, God is using in this spiritual spectrum to move people along the line. They are not ready to cross it. But they are moved from the minus eight to the minus six. And maybe God will use that dinner at their friend's house to move them from the minus six to the minus five. And then God will use that movie to move them one more. And then God might use that sermon to move them two more. And then God, and there is a chain where the spirit is working in various ways, perhaps through days, weeks, months, or years in people's lives. And we commit to the process trusting God in prayer that he is moving people along. So Paul, I think, challenges us as we embrace God's mission in Europe today in various ways. We could um, note others, but for time's sake, we will pause here. Because I also, before land the plane in this seminar, want to further inquire and, and, and learn together some of the ways that God is working in the continent, and some practical ways that we can be helped in our work abong. Europeans and people who have come to Europe. So, Jim, if you would come back again, as I would love to hear from you. You mentioned in your report, you have touched briefly on the diaspora church, but where are you seeing God at work? Um, I was going to say in special ways, but it is always special. Where are you seeing God at work that you would highlight uh, across Europe? You've done a great job today, <clears throat> Helder, of, of, of telling a story. Uh, you've contextualized Europe in Scripture, in a way, and Paul's experience in Athens. Um, I'm just going to do the same with my answer, if you forgive me. Um, for me, one of the most powerful parables that Jesus taught was the parable of the leaven. You know that one? Yeah? Where you, you hear the story of a woman who took... The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took uh, uh, dough and mixed in the leaven until it completely disappeared, until the whole leaven was transformed. 
uh, and then she could make bread. And the flour is transformed when the leaven is, is mixed into it and it disappears into the dough. You can't see it. And yet the transformation is incredible. And that's what I think of when I, when I think of what's going on in Europe right now. Mm. We might not be able to see what God is doing, but he is at work. And um, I think we often, our image of uh, success, of what God working looks like, is different to the image that Jesus mm. gives us in the parable of the leaven. We want to see great results. We want to see, you know, revivals. But how do revivals happen? They happen through the invisible but irresistible transformation of the kingdom. The kingdom mixed into the world. Mm. And from that scat- those scattered people uh, in, in the first centuries, we are here today. And I just find that incredibly inspiring, what you said about the, 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 the time. It is time plus God, and the rest happens. Mm. Yeah? So I'm, I'm very excited about what God is doing in Europe at the moment. Fantastic. And if I can just... So ask some just, specific questions. Yeah, maybe. but just comment on that. I've been thinking about it recently, uh, and uh, particularly as we, we, we expect major moves of God in places such as the UK or for God to do what maybe he did in the past. But I've been often challenged by the fact, and thank you for bringing that parable uh, um, before our attention, that Jesus himself, again, uses the metaphor of seeds and others to primarily describe the growth of the kingdom as if he were saying, the church is not primarily a, Meteorite that will fall and create this major impact, and it's it's like a seed or many seeds that will grow, yeah. and the normal, in a way, supernatural way of God working about the growth of His kingdoms are not revivals. They they, they can happen, and praise God when they happen. But uh, we are looking at Paul in Greece, and I was in Greece back in in. April and having a coffee with someone in Corinth and thinking Paul was here. And there was no revival in Corinth that we know of. No, he didn't change society in Corinth. They continued to. I'm not sure he changed Athens, but God used him. Seeds were planted. And what. Get, so I think this is such a profound and important conversation that it, I think needs to encourage us. We are planting seeds. Mm-hmm. Praise God for that. Yeah. And. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to bring that revival. He may do it, but maybe not the way he wants to work. Because primarily, according to scriptures, the way that God brings about growth of his kingdom are in these manners. In seeds, and it's growing. And Anyhow, just a side note um, that I think is hopefully encouraging. I, to, to I see one or two gray-haired people here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, when you were just talking then, I was, what came to my mind was what would have been the conversation here at Keswick in those months, that first year after all the missionaries were expelled from China. Okay? You know that after the war, uh, many of the missionaries mm. sent from the UK with missions like OMF and whatever were expelled 
from China. They left their fragile churches, uh, often with very little um, pastoral experience and, and training. And yet we know what ha what's happened in China in the intervening decades. Um, that is, to me, exactly what you're saying, is the image of what God can do with our fragility, with our weakness, mm -hmm. but when we trust in his word and with the people disappearing into the, the, the massa. How do you say mm. in English? The dough, yeah? Um, and, and out of that, doing something incredible. And I think we're seeing that too with some of the things that are happening in Europe today. Again, I think we fixate a little bit on mega churches, on big things. Mm. When God's secret weapon, God's way of doing things is through local churches, through families, through relationships, through your workplace, through your neighbors and your neighborhoods. That's where he does his thing, not in bringing people together in thousands in a big church building, but in dispersing his people and it, with the presence of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, touching the lives of millions. Oh, thank you, Jim. That's so important to be reminded of. Thank you. And at the same time, as we see God's work, uh, for example, in your report, you mentioned, you highlighted uh, your excitement, let's say, about the diaspora church in Europe. Uh, work among youth is another. Would you, would you comment on some of these specific, let's say, work of God yeah. that you are encouraged by? So in the report, I highlight three things. Mm -hmm. um, The tremendous acceleration of church planting in Europe yeah. there has been in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, some of that taking place through very intentional denominational church planting initiatives, sometimes through uh, incredibly dynamic people, and sometimes through those majority world Christians that are mm -hmm. in Europe. Just one, uh, one Nigerian denomination, the Redeemed Christian Church of God, has planted more than a thousand churches in the UK in the last 25 years, okay? Now, right now, those are very, very Nigerian churches, okay? But they won't be for long because those Nigerians have children and they marry into, uh, sometimes they marry a, a white guy or a white girl. And over time, those churches are going to have a huge impact on this country. So the first thing is the, the, um, the church planting initiatives. I was part of a, a gathering in Berlin about three years ago, where uh, leaders of 28 national church planting movements in Europe got together. So these are not individual church planting initiatives. These are platforms for church planting from 28 different European countries that came together, 180 leaders. There are amazing things happening around church planting in Europe. And uh, it's, as I said before, it's God's way of doing his thing by planting new outposts of the kingdom around Europe, Le local churches, small churches in places where currently there's no living, uh, breathing Christian community. So that's the first thing, mm -hmm. revival of church planting. The second is really what God has been doing with youth movements. And um, I'm, if you think back to the beginning of most of the Christian organizations, nearly all of those began with youth movements, um, whether that is 
YWAM or YMCA or uh, um, OM, all started by people in their 20s. Our own organization, European Christian Mission, began in 1904 when one 18-year-old man in Estonia thought that God was calling him to reach Europe with the gospel. 18 years old. Okay? So we should expect revival to come first amongst the young, and we should be uh, on the lookout for how we can encourage our young people. We need to take risks with our young people, give them opportunities to serve, give them opportunities to to lead and to share. Uh, Some of my formative uh, preaching experiences came when I was in my late teens. Mm. You know, the opportunity to teach the word at 14 to a bunch of uh, non-Christian young people go through the book of Romans in, in a year. And I, I didn't know any better. So I said yes when they invited me. <laughs> you know, if they asked me now, I'd have said no way. Um, but to take risks with our young people. And then thirdly, what I've already said about the, the, the incredible thing that's happened with the arrival in Europe of millions of majority mm. world Christians from Latin America, from Asia, from Africa. And here I really want to throw out a challenge to you because there are relatively few people here at Keswick from that group, relatively few, for the weight and the importance that they have in the church in the UK. Whatever you can do to stretch out your hand in welcome and friendship to the, to the diaspora churches, to the ethnic churches that are in your town and city, just reaching out to them, getting to know them, building relationships. If you're a church leader, supporting the, the, the leaders of those communities. If you can do anything to support them, it will be a huge blessing to your place where you're, where you're working because that is what those, God has brought them here. It is not an accident that they are here in Europe today. Thank you so much, Jim. That is so extremely important. And you are making me think of, we know in history and we are experiencing that again in Europe how God uses the tragedies and the injustices of our world in ways that only his grace can do, despite it, for the extinction of his kingdom. For example, the tremendous refugee crisis and the opportunities, the responsibility we have in Europe to be reaching with the gospel people that we would very, in a very difficult way be able to reach in their own countries. I'm thinking also of the war. Maybe you want to say something about that. I know you've been involved in some initiatives trying to respond to the situation in, in the Ukraine. But um, as some of you know, I served through community Bible study. And we have been so saddened to see the situation even with our team in the country of Ukraine. But are just simply impressed at the ways that God is using and how much, how many doors have been opened for the work. And including people who are living Ukraine or people we know in Russia that have had to leave and are taking the gospel to others in other countries. And so the tension between the sadness, the tragedy, tragedy, but seeing how God is using these moments in history uh, as well is quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, I would really encourage you to continue to pray for Ukraine. Um, we can easily get weary 
uh, of doing good. <laughs> and we need to continue to pray for, for what's, what's happening there. Um, for our generation, this is uh, the first time we've had war in, in Europe in my lifetime mm-hmm. uh, to this degree of, uh, uh, of devastation and uh, impact. It's the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. In regards to the number of people, you probably know there are something like um, 8 million Ukrainians displaced outside the country. More or less 5 million have moved sort of west and the other three moved east to, to, to into Russia. Um, there's another 8 million internally displaced people within the country. Uh, so it's massive numbers. Um, and the, the impact in the country is enormous. And yet, as you rightly said the harvest is also enormous. There are an incredible number of people coming to faith in Ukraine, even in the war zones. Um, the work that the church is doing there is, is extraordinary. Um, but God is doing uh, incredible things too with the refugees. Many of them are being served, of course, by our churches and by uh, families taking them in. But um, what many of you possibly don't know is that in regards to Central and Eastern Europe, Ukraine was pretty much the Bible belt. And so a, a huge proportion of, of the refugees are actually believers, and God has dispersed them. You know, a bit like uh, Acts 8, you know, the believers being dispersed. And God uses that. So there are churches that are being planted by these refugees across Europe in different places. And again, we should, uh, you've rightly said it, Helder, um, we should pray and and feel and grieve with them but at the same time be expectant to what god is doing mm. in the midst of it um perhaps it's crass to quote genesis fifty twenty, but in 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 the desire of uh, of putin to do evil god has worked good in the midst of that situation mm. thank you jim thank you very much once again We'll have the opportunity to talk to Jim if you want afterwards, and we'll have the QR code for the report. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you very much. We only have a few minutes uh, left, but on practical notes as well, if we can be of service to you in all our practical conversations among diaspora churches and even our national churches. Um, we, uh, as a team, by the way, very glad to have Auntie, um, our regional European director here, or Simon, who is the director for CBS in, in the UK. Uh, we have Bible studies available in all the European languages for free that many people are using to reach also refugees and diaspora churches. If we can help and serve you, um, please talk to us and count on us. And I yesterday had a privilege of meeting briefly Helen, who has been part of the board of the European uh, Evangelical Alliance with whom we have served. And Helen, I wonder if you want to, one or two minutes, just briefly share something about the European Evangelical Alliance or how it can serve our work in the continent as well. If you don't mind coming forward and I'll give you the, the mic I was struck when, um, Helder, you said about the Areopagus. And for Europe, one of the Areopagus is the EU. 
and as Christians, as evangelical Christians, our representatives there are the European Evangelical Alliance. Mm. They've been working there for 25 years, so they are consulted and have influence. They're particularly working on religious freedom, mm. and if people would like more information, I just suggest they go to the European EA website, which is www.europeanea.org. There's much more there about 20-plus networks that cover refugees, evangelism, all sorts of things. But I think, you know, particularly what happens in terms of religious liberty mm. in Europe is critical for the gospel. And us being informed about that is important. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And of course, if you would like to talk to any of us, we'd be very uh, grateful and open to do so once we finish uh, this time. I acknowledge our time is up. would love to take more time to either have questions or comments, but we want to be sensitive to, to our time. So just allow me to, again, uh, affirm my appreciation for your time and your interest and being here with us. May God continue to bless you and use you uh, greatly in Europe and beyond. Thank you very much, James.